You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hello, Stella. How are you? I'm good, Sasha. We have Marcus and Sue Evans with us today, which is very exciting because they've released a new book. And this, to me, is the first book of its kind. I think there's going to be many after, but I think this is the first one that is kind of setting out a stall in the new world where after the explosion of gender, now there is kind of analysis of where it's coming from, how therapists should work for it. And the, the name of the book is Gender Dysphoria, a Therapeutic Model for Working with Children, Adolescents and Young Adults. And you're very welcome, Marcus and Sue. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, it's lovely to be here. Could, could you maybe start off, maybe Sue, uh, you start off and tell us, what, how did you get into gender? What, what were you working at and where, where did it all come from? So my background was originally in nursing, in general nursing, and then I quite quickly moved into mental health nursing. And then I became fascinated really with the whole area of the mind in psychiatry rather than drugs and and uh, that kind of treatment and so where we both went really individually but probably together a bit was that we both became interested in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and sort of understanding people more and working therapeutically so then I had various jobs but I ended up working as a clinical lecturer I ran courses for nurses and beginners really in counseling and psychotherapy but then a part-time post came up in what had been newly named then the gender identity development service before that it had actually interestingly been called the gender identity disorder service so I think already there was a change going on there what sort of year is that in and so this was about 19 sorry I'm getting the wrong generation there so uh, 2003 I think was about when I started there keep going and at that time when I uh, went into the team it was a very small team Um, a psychiatrist a psychologist or two a social worker who was also a psychotherapist a child psychotherapist and um, a couple of other people who came and did uh, tenures there. And, and is, this, is this the Tavistock, which is now the largest gender service in the UK? This was the Tavistock, yes. The one that has recently been in the press um, for the judicial review here in the UK. So uh, it was a very small service. And we had under 100 children referred to the service per year so it it, it's really different to what it it is now and then I worked there for a few years but um and again I don't want to repeat things too much I don't know how much people are aware of but I became concerned because at that time they were using puberty blockers for 16 year olds and my experience of witnessing the young people coming into the service and listening to their backgrounds and what was going on with them and then getting to know them and talk with them, I became concerned that they were being medicalised too quickly. So I raised a flag back then and, um, you know, we had a small internal report done. But, and again, I'm kind of, this is rather a long intro here, but really what happened was that, the doctor who did that report um, more or less reported on all the concerns for the development of the service and the way the service was being run back then. This was in 2006, um, almost identical to the many concerns really that are being raised here and now in the present time in gender services for young people. So the questions that we're now talking about on a slightly larger scale have existed amongst professionals in the field who knew what was going on for quite some time 
I think so. And I think the, the first thing I have to say is back then it was much less um, affirmative. You know, there was more room uh, and certainly I got on with doing psychotherapy with the young patients who I had in my care. But it was growing. There was uh, certainly there was a feeling that there was a push, that there was something going on in the background with the um, charities, the sort of external support. The influences were definitely appearing into the clinical service back then. And, and of course, the young people themselves and their families, a lot of them feel really under pressure. So there was always that pressure in the system, yeah. It, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a small report. It was. It, it was done by the medical director at the time. I mean, Sue was the first whistleblower, and it was. It was a very serious report in which an external consultant was brought in to take part of the of the panel. Um, so, um, so Sorry, sort yes, of minimising. It was. It was yeah. actually quite a serious piece mm. of work. Mm. But as Sue said actually predicting a lot of the recent concerns about the service mm. in 2006. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't being clear. Yeah. I, it was an internal report rather than a, a national report yeah. or an external yeah, governing right. body report. So. And what happened after that, from 2006 onwards, what happened? Well, shockingly, not very much. So, so the recommendations he made, I can't remember them all, but Dr. Taylor, who wrote the report, you know, flagged up that there needed to be more serious research into the area, you know, that the, the follow-up needed to be a, a lot better, that the subject needed to be understood more, um, that there needed to be more, um, more serious intent, really, in clinically investigating what was happening and how the treatment was going, and certainly for the children who were on puberty blockers to understand what was happening to them in the longer term. And unfortunately, none of that really happened. He, he stepped down as medical director, and then a lot of the recommendations were not followed through. Mm. Mm. Well, as we know, because the recommendations that were given then are the very things that were missing in the evidence in the judicial review that we had here last year in the UK. Mm. So I would like, before we kind of dive into that, Marcus, can you introduce yourself a little bit and share how you got to this work? Yeah, well, um, I trained as a psychiatric nurse with Sue in the early 80s, and then uh, I did various things. I used to run a day hospital, and then I ran a parasuicide service, in which that was in the early 80s, uh, late, sorry, late, late 80s, in which from time to time... You would um, get people who had had sexual reassignment surgery with the belief that, that all their problems would be solved, who would then find that the problems remained with them and would then become suicidal. So I'd assess them at King's. Why I think that's, re- re- why I think that's relevant is there, was a, there were things said at the time that only 1% of people regret. Now, I... You know, it's a small percentage of people who are going for um, sexual reassignment surgery, and yet we would have not a large number, but a steady flow of people coming through King's Casualty. So, I realised that these these statistics were being downplayed, and that was in the early nineties. Um, so, yeah, so I I was the first nurse to be trained as a psychotherapist at the Tavistock, and then I took on. Um, I was what's called head of the nursing discipline, and I was at that for about 20 years. In terms of this area, so I was always part of management, so I knew about um, the report that Sue had instigated and David Taylor had done. I knew about the concerns about the the JID service for over a sort of 20-year period. Um, The other thing that I did was I worked on a a unit for – personality disorders and people with sort of you describe as disturbed relationships and disturbed states of mind so that's my particular interest is psychoanalytic ideas in psychiatry um but i i i also then was in charge of the adult and adolescent service for five years um so why i'm emphasizing that as i was part of management and would hear from time to time about the jid service and 
it's to suffice it to say that the Tavistock's history and tradition is in developmental psychology, psychoanalytic thinking, and in family systems psychotherapy. Um, this service was always an outlier to that because it started to use puberty blockers um, as a sort of uh, treatment for a psychological condition, which was outside the trusts, traditions and histories. So it, it was controversial from the very stars. Wow. I just wanted to finish where Sue was at, because after 2006, I know you, you must have continued working, and I'm thinking you were definitely part of bringing the, the judicial review. You were definitely part of that. So could, could you tell me a little bit about that before we go further? Yes, well, it's 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 a long story, and actually, Marcus is part of it, really. So we'll kind of just okay. tell that part of it. So, mm. I, I mean, having tried really hard to raise the clinical concerns and work within the service at the time, I mean, there comes a point at which you think, no, you know, I'm making myself unpopular. I've done what I can, and and there were other things that I wanted to go on and do as well. So, uh, and it was tough. I have to say, it was hard to work in a service if you feel unpopular or you're saying things which are questioning where they're not welcome. Questions aren't welcome. So anyway, we so I continued to work in the adult department, and then I retired from the Tavistock uh, about five or six years ago, I think. Mark has then retired a few years after that. 2018, yeah. And he became a governor. So in the UK, I'm sure it's similar out in the States and, and in Ireland, but here in the UK, any kind of large institution will have then a board of governors. Marcus was voted in and appointed as a, a governor. And uh, then what happened is we both heard from a colleague of ours, Dr. David Bell, who was just at going out of his office as staff governor. He'd previously been the staff governor. He'd heard from quite a large number, I think about 10 staff, who were now working in the much larger gender identity service at the Tavistock. And um, they were very concerned, uh, again, about practice. And it was, I think, much more serious. They were really, um, there was a lot of criticism by then from the staff who felt that the children were not getting good enough care, they weren't being satisfactorily assessed for the treatments, and there were child safeguarding concerns that weren't allowed to be conveyed to the child safeguarding officer of the Tavistock um, sometimes. So do you want to take up from there? Because what happened was Marcus became involved. Well, then the, 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 thing, the first thing that arrived on the desk was two things. One was from a letter from 10 parents whose kids had been treated at JIDS, who were worried that they they felt their kids hadn't had sufficiently psychological examination. Um, it was a very articulate letter. It, I, was, I was used to dealing with complaints because that's what I had to do as manager of the department. And basically, it was a very measured letter from concerned parents. And then there was Dave Bell's report, which... Uh, basically said, as Sue said, a similar sort of thing, you know, that people were worried that kids were being rushed through, there wasn't enough psychological examination, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, now then it started a sort of, to cut a long story short, an ongoing process in which myself and one or two of the other governors were involved in a sort of, in trying to get this whole issue looked at. And it became clear to me, because, you know, I've been in management in the NHS for a long time, there was basically a a wish to shut this debate down so that um, Dave Bell's report wasn't to be shown to the new new governors. Then uh, we requested that Dave Bell... So what they did was they set up... The medical director did his own internal report, as David Bell had done previously... We asked for Dave Bell to be at the final meeting at which the medical director's report would be looked at so that we could see whether the medical director's report adequately addressed the concerns raised by the staff who approached Dr. Bell. That wasn't allowed either. So, in effect, the trust um, were just trying to shut this issue down. 
Can I ask you, were you thinking back to what Sue had been doing in 2006? You, you, could, were... you could take the report that, that, um, that David Taylor produced, uh, the letter from the parents, and um, the, the Dave Bell's report. You put them all together, basically over a sort of 16-year period, it, it, it's very similar, people saying the same thing. And um, and I thought this was a reasonable concern. It's a controversial treatment using medication to treat a psychological condition. We should be really cautious and take, you know, the, the attitude that the trust had had up to, up to that time was always take complaints seriously. You get some very unreasonable complaints. You get a lot of reasonable complaints, but you, you treat the complainant with respect. This seemed to me like a completely reasonable complaint. And for political reasons, the trust were trying to shut the, the debate down, which seemed, again, as Sue was saying, see, there's another weird thing about the culture because the, the, the Tavistock is a multidisciplinary setup in which you're used to discussing different ideas about a treatment approach, etc., etc. The fact that Sue had the feeling that whatever sort of questions and doubts she raised was not welcomed as part of a clinical discussion but was basically viewed as being antagonistic and against the uh, sort of flow was again it's sort of counterculture um but i then saw this attitude in the trust board in the um the ceo and the chair of the trust board basically didn't want challenge um, so in the end, I resigned, um, saying that I couldn't go along with it. I remember reading about you resigning, and it was a major event, like in the yeah, papers. it was. It, well, I was terrified. It was basically the end of my career, and everyone <laughs> would hate me and think you're just a troublemaker. Or um, I've never been involved in anything like this at all. I can happily, unlike some people I know, I can happily walk past an argument. I'm not particularly, um, don't feel like I've got to fight every ethical argument that I come across, unlike other people that are close to me. Um, <laughs> like, so, do you mean physically close yeah, to you, like sitting yeah, next physically. to you? <laughs> Dave Bell's another one. He's so, incapable of walking past, past an ethical concern. I'm completely capable. You are capable. Well, why weren't you able to walk past this no. one? He, no, he's, was, he's not was, really. It was, he's, it was he's, just, I, I, I also won't be bullied. You know, um, I thought this was terrible mental health practice. It I, goes against everything that yeah. I've stood for in 40 years in psychiatry. It's, it's shocking. The truth is, do, you know, that and what we often say is no one knows the answers here. You know, no one yet. You know, we don't fully understand this area. But in any other area of psychology, psychiatry, mental health, well, or medicine, you know, when I was in general nursing, there's always inquiry, isn't there? There's always questions about a treatment model. What does treatment effect? You know, how does how does uh, the risk get managed? How do you evaluate treatment outcomes and approaches? And and this area just seem, it seems so difficult. And I think it's such a shame because we've all got a lot to learn. And and we're all, you know, certainly I know from you two and the work that you're both doing, we're just trying to add in to a conversation, trying to open up ideas all the time. And the difficulty with this area is you get accused of bigotry and transphobia and shut down. And I think that's to the, to the detriment of the children and the families and the patients, the adults who, who you know, experience this and, and feel... I think you're right. I think to put a timeline on it, in and around early 2019, maybe, Marcus, you left... The, yeah, yes. you resigned. Yeah, we'll get back to your question now, Stella. Yeah. <laughs> I did warn you we'd do this. <laughs> and then I think I met you first, both Sue and Marcus, and, you, you know, it was maybe six months later, and I think it was at the launch of Heather Brunskill-Evans' book in London. Mm. And uh, if I'm right, uh, her second book, yeah. Inventing uh, the Transgender Children and uh, uh, Teenagers. And... Um, you had started something, you had started, you know, the, the, the beginning of the judicial review, you had taken that case, is that right? 
Yeah, so so what what happened was because of Marcus's resignation and Dave Bell's involvement, a kind of group of people gradually started gathering around an event at, at the House of Lords, which was run by Standing for Women, I think, wasn't it? And uh, uh, there were several guest speakers there, and Marcus gave a paper there. But then towards the end, there were sort of questions and discussion. And, and in fact, a representative from the Tavistock uh, stood up and denied that there were any children that were being put forward um, for treatment precipitously and you know this didn't ever happen and so when Marcus is teasing and saying there's someone who can't walk away <laughs> from something I, I felt I couldn't allow that comment to go and so for the first time I actually stood up and I did say it does happen because I saw it happen myself you know back in 2004 um, and and I took it up at the time and we also know that staff have reported it now so, um, and then what happened was, as, as any good conference ends, you always go off to the pub, you know, afterwards and have a few drinks and a discussion about how the day's gone. And we met um, some really concerned clinicians and parents through that network. And then very quickly it was felt, and I think it was partly because the message from the Tavistock was consistently, there is no problem here. These drugs are wholly reversible. You know, we are very thoughtful and careful. And yet in the meantime, because of Marcus's resignation and and uh, what he'd said, we were being contacted by people who said, my child was seen twice before being commenced on puberty blockers. My child has serious comorbidities and they paid no attention and they've referred them for hormone blockers. So we knew that the management were not going to take on board the, the sort of child safeguarding concerns, the clinical concerns that were being raised by the parents and by the clinicians. So in a way, you had to do something. Yeah, Yeah. not only that, From I remember, if I remember correctly, Marcus had resigned and then there was reports from the newspapers and the BBC that 35 clinicians had left or a high number of clinicians had yeah. left the Tavistock. Yeah. So there was an yes. awful lot of kind of almost a, a stink around the Tavistock at this stage. For me, over in Ireland, just looking on going, what is going on with yes. the Tavistock? Yes. That's and and although the Trust said it's in keeping, because they would come up with various defensive arguments, it was in keeping with statistics of turnover of staff and other mental health trusts. What they... What they didn't say is the Tavistock is not. Uh, um, it's, it's a rather unique trust in which is which has got the lowest turnover of staff in the country. So it was completely without comparison that so many staff because people it's a it's a prestigious place and people want to work there and they apply mm. and then they stay a long time. So thirty five staff leaving and we also would talk to the staff who were very unhappy with what was going on. So again it's just further example of the sort of attempt to sort of cover something up rather than saying got a problem here, let's have a look at what's going wrong. And so you decided to take uh, kind of a court case or take take some sort of Legal yeah, action. so so there was a parent that I met through this sort of circle of contacts who was very concerned because her daughter had autism, also had you know other behavioural issues and 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 psychological issues that she was trying to deal with, and also had decided you know that she had gender dysphoria and wanted to transition and so the mother was fearful that her daughter who would be vulnerable to this would go to the clinic and was she was rapidly approaching her 16th birthday and could you know go on to puberty blockers quite quickly and the mother was really concerned that she wanted her daughter to be protected from a precipitous transition so it was her originally, and as we all know, through the case, um, I was gathering witnesses, you know, to give expert witnesses throughout throughout the world, actually. We couldn't. We tried in the UK. Not many people would step up in the UK initially because everyone's so fearful of, you know, reputations, sponsorships, and so on. And uh, anyway, I then read about Kira Bell, in a newspaper here and I asked a journalist if I could contact her 
And I asked her if she would be interested in being originally a witness. But as things transpired, she became famously the claimant in the case. Who and, and I think that was absolutely right. She was a detransitioner, for anyone who doesn't know, who had been to the Tavistock and very quickly uh, as a teenager, sort of 15, quickly got put onto puberty blockers and transitioned. And I'm not giving anything away because she's talked openly about this. You know, by the time she was 20, she'd had a double mastectomy. And very soon after that, felt she'd made a real mistake and was really... Um, so upset and let, felt so let down that no professional had really held on to her and said, well, what's going on with you, Kira? Mm. It seems like such an important point because so far everything you've discussed is that there seemed to be some unethical kind of rushing kids onto these treatments, but nobody had really been talking about what are the psychological interventions that would be beneficial. So we're going to get to that, but can you just summarize what the um, judicial review found? What was the outcome of that? Because I think in the UK, this is very, very important and it's, it's a precedent. So can you just explain for our audience, what was the outcome of this case? Yeah, so it's important to say, so a judicial review, some people think it was Kira kind of taking them to court for medical negligence. It's not. A judicial review in the UK is when institutions are examined by the judiciary to see whether what they are doing is lawful, effectively. And so we questioned whether children as young as 10, 11, 12, who by now were in the study and some were being given puberty blockers at Tanner stage two of their development, you know, whether they were able to give informed consent to this experimental treatment, which it's so unusual, and this is why it's so important people understand, that it changes their bodies in a way that will affect their adult life, for which when they are teenagers, they can have no concept of, you know, because they are not, they are not adults, they are not um, there. So, and, and that's the key part of the informed consent. Another important argument is that, that is, this was called, this is often called a sort of, um, it's like a pause in puberty, but actually, when you look at the figures that Tavistock themselves pro- provided, once you get on the com- medical conveyor belt, you don't get off. So if you start at 12, 13, 14 on puberty blockers, you tend to go on along the line. You don't ne- necessarily go on to surgical interventions, but you go a long way along the conveyor belt. So th- there was no pause. There wasn't evidence of a pause. It was... Um, a medicalization of a psychological condition. But effectively, the court case, was it, it, it turned around the informed consent issue. Mm. And what the judges found, and I can't remember the exact wording, but it, it, it was that, you know, in the age group of sort of 12-year-olds, it was highly unlikely. And even under 16s, it was pretty unlikely that they could understand the consequences of consenting to the treatment unless it goes through the court. So any child that the Tavistock wanted to put on blockers would now have to apply to the courts. So it doesn't mean it it couldn't ever happen, but it does, I think, mean that they will get a much more serious assessment period and hopefully a much lengthier treatment period. Just to say about the reason for taking the case is he is that in a way medics are saying I would agree with them by and large you keep the law out of medicine, but that that's when there is some sort of rigorous process of looking at medical practice and some sort of consensus about saying well what works and what doesn't work. Mm. The problem is there's so little research, you know, there's so little follow-up of what happens to these kids, and there's a small bunch of people who who don't i mean there was a report done wasn't there sort of 97 percent of medics who who replied to this um survey said they didn't think it was right that kids could um give consent to treatment which has got long-standing implications but all you need is a few clinicians who are outside that sort of cohort 
And then you've got the whole problem of the lack of evidence across the board. So in a sense, in a way, there's, you've got to re- you've got to sort of take recourse to the courts because medicine can't be relied upon in this area. That was the view the sort of legal team took with um, Sue and Mother A and then with Kira Bell. Mm -hmm. Especially if the Tavistock Clinic itself is doing a poor job of addressing clinician concerns or parental concerns. I mean, there's no, almost like no checks and balances system within the the, the Tavistock itself. So I can certainly understand why outside intervention was called upon because obviously Tavistock wasn't appropriately regulating itself. Strange thing is, I so I used to be in charge of the, the adult adolescent department and had to produce reports for the commissioners. And one of the things you'd have to do is diagnostic categories, outcomes, epidemiological information, you know, ethnicity, age, etc., etc., etc. The most vulnerable service, but the, the service that treats the most vulnerable kids, I was told by the medical director at the Board of Governors, does no follow-up. Oh. Quite mm. extraordinary. I mean, mm. to put it as an outlier, now every other service in the Tavistock that I know of, even the Portman Clinic, which is a sort of, you know, for, for you know, people who've got um, sexual disorders and one thing or another, are very wary about filling in forms. They still have to fill, uh, fill in forms which will go to, um, uh, to, you know, to the people who commission the service. The fact that you've got no follow-up of this, mm. of this experimental treatment on this vulnerable group of patients is quite extraordinary. And one of the most jaw-dropping moments, really, I think, for the judges, although they never said yeah. this, on day one of the judicial review, they asked how many of the young people in the service had autism because they'd heard this statistic that a lot of the young people were um, on the spectrum. And they said that they didn't know. Their, their QC replied, no, we don't have that information. So they asked them to bring it back the following day. And in the morning, the judges asked the question again, and she replied the same. No, we can't provide that information. And and we had both worked in the adult department where we always input all our data. And if Marcus, as the, as the clinical director of the adult department, had wanted to know how many people have depression, yeah. he would have been able to press a button and know. Um, and, and so, I mean, again and again, and I think it, it, it's so hard to convey this or I think for it to be heard, but again and again you fear that these young people, the young children in this service and their families were being let down by really poor clinical work and standards and child safeguarding. You know, just it, 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 it's heartbreaking to know what some of the families have been through. Just a matter of interest, because I can't resist not asking, even though I am dying to go on to the book, and we will very soon. Um, you, you know, when you say this extraordinary story that you've just encapsulated, do you feel that all the clinicians were just buying into this idea that all these children should should transition as soon as possible? Did they believe that medicalization was the best route or were they mindless or were they slightly unsure about what's going on and was it a kind of collective kind of pluralistic ignorance that nobody really knew what was going on so we'll just go with it what do you well, to- talk about the, the thing is is that, that almost the service acted like a sort of silo which was outside the culture of the rest of the departments and as Daybell picked up, it was pr- probably got the, the least experienced staff group seeing the most difficult, complicated um, caseload and partly complicated because of the pressure politically, the pressure that comes from the kids, the pressure that comes from the parents. So you, you've probably got, yeah, a, a relatively, in Tavistock terms, relatively inexperienced staff group in a very complicated clinical situation. And I've met a few clinicians who said they raised uh, they raised concerns and were offered promotions. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Wait, uh, to be quiet, promotions to no, be quiet. No, but kind of okay, I hear you I hear your concerns. I hear your concerns. That's great, yeah. You should go for this promotion and once yes. you're once you're going up a ladder, you're not inclined to blow whistles on the ladder you're going up. 
Sure. You you yeah, you might move on up or you move out, maybe. Yeah. I think it is hard. I, I know yeah. that there were a few clinicians who were really hang on hanging in mm. to the Tavistock because I don't yeah. want to vilify every clinician yeah. that's worked there. I think a lot of clinicians were really trying to stay and work with the young people. Yeah. Um, and it's important to say that. It's, but but it's I the culture that's I the think problem. it's the culture and I think it it, it is I mean, there is so much, and you two, I'm sure, have talked about this a lot. You know, there there is like a clinical blindness or a clinical groupthink that goes on in which, you know, we don't like to step out of line. We don't maybe like to rock the boat. We've all got careers to think yeah. about. You know, it's, uh, you know, maybe even back then I was lucky it wasn't my main job. You know, I could afford to speak up. And then I could afford to leave because I also, my main job was in the adult department up in the stock. And, you know, so, so it, it, and again, I think that's what's happened now. People have mm. said, well, how come you two? Because when the press first heard about it, there was no one who would talk to them. It's changed a bit now, but there were no mm. clinicians. Nobody would talk about this. And I think we were just lucky in a sense that we're at the end of our institutional careers in the NHS and 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 in a way um we could we could risk it yeah yeah and so then you went on did you go into private practice and from there the book began yes well I suppose as I mentioned earlier what happened was really I think from the moment Marcus resigned and talked about his concerns there was a flood, really, of contacts coming in. And then again, when I I did a little bit of press for um, Mother A and I taking the judicial review, so then my name was in the press as well. And so really, ever since then, um, we have really been overwhelmed <laughs> with the number of families who've contacted us, parents who've contacted us and... and uh, expressed and and felt so relieved that they found professionals who were prepared to say could we just hold on here a minute and have a a wider think about what's happening with some of our young people but we, we also there's an issue you see in a way the psychological models it's not like they haven't existed but because in the Portman and, um, you know, in America and in various other places, people have been thinking about this for a long time. But the psychological models, you know, weren't present in the gender service. So in a sense, you, you know, the kids are coming and saying, well, this is the model of treatment. And the staff are then faced with how do you how do you say to a kid, well, actually, um, we're going to question you and think about your mind. When often the patients, the, the, the kids don't want to think about their minds. They find that very awkward. And so the staff feel, well, why would I say no to the medical intervention? I don't have a psychological model that I'm aware of for thinking about these states of mind. So we, we, we thought, you know, with the, with the court case that we, we should write a book. Um, on based on our experience, and you know, and we both had experiences over quite a long period of time. Yeah, there's you know, it's been not a like, slow trickle, yeah, but nothing but, like but the nothing like the avalanche now. Mm. And so that's why we decided to write this book to to sort of as a sort of starting not a starting point, but as a, as a sort of contribution for saying, look, there's a psychological way of thinking about these states of mind. Partly because if you work in psychiatry. And people are anxious, they're feeling fragmented, they're confused. They, they often fix on the idea that they've got a sort of concrete problem and they want a concrete solution. Well, your job in mental health is neither to butt heads with them nor is, is it to collude with them. You've got to think, well, hang on a minute, how do we understand the fact that they think this is the solution to their difficulties? But how do we open up a conversation about what's going on for this individual what are the drivers that are forcing them to look for sort of concrete solutions and and for fine ways of sort of opening the dialogue up about who they are and what they're struggling with? So it's, it's in a way, the approach of the book is no different from what we do if you were treating anorexia, if you were treating someone with a delusion, if you were treating someone 
um, who believes, you know, with um, uh, a monosymptomatic delusion that their nose is too big or you, you, you don't just go, oh, yeah, that's fine, you know, we're in agreement with you. <laughs> Do you have any um, advice in the book for clinicians who might be working with somebody who's actively in the process of transition already? Or is this more about how to alleviate gender dysphoria, you know, before somebody approaches medical steps? So I, I'm just trying to think about, I don't think we've particularly got a clinical example of, of a therapist who's sort of with someone who's very close to transition. But what we try to do in the book is to, as Marcus said, sort of utilise some of the theories that we know about from our sort of psychoanalytic background. But in thinking about the individuals that you have in front of you, the young people and their presentations, and, and, and working out what is most helpful theoretically to bring to the understanding that you might have of what they're presenting with, and then, in a sense, to find a kind of routine to trying to think with them about what their mind is doing and, and why it might be doing that. So that's sort of, that sounds a bit like a sort of long piece of string there, but I suppose it's, it's that, that I think that's helpful at any stage, you know, whether, whether you've got a 10 year old who's, you know, said something for the very first time, you know, maybe I'd like to be a, a boy if it's a girl or whatever, but, but if she's a girl, but, but, but to kind of think about what's going on defensively in the mind for anyone, because whether someone goes on to transition or not, I think that would be very helpful um, yeah. as, a, as a sort of starting point for them and their relationships mm -hmm. going forward. It's like the ability to self-reflect and, and be curious yeah. about why you're yeah. thinking about certain things or why you're drawn to certain solutions. I mean, many of the sort of many of the examples, in a way, are you think you think what's going on in the family, what's going on with the couple? They're often often dynamics, aren't there? And that needs understanding. Sometimes the kids got hold of an idea, you know, that they're, they're born into a family of girls, and they got hold of the idea that dad they've fallen out with mum because maybe they're not the favourite or whatever, and they think that dad would have liked a boy. So in a way, if you, if you want to be loved, there's a, there's a very concrete model. If only I was a boy, I could play football with dad, everything would be all right. There's, that's one dynamic. Um, then you get sort of sometimes the, the, the sort of mother-son dynamic can be very influential, you know, sort of rather overclose, you know, the wife may be struggling in their relationship with the father. There's a sort of a, a bit of a... A seductive relationship with the, with the son, which gets erotized. So all sorts of ways that it could go, but one one could it's got to look at the personality of the kid presenting and the dynamics of the family. Then the other thing is, you 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 know we we, we sort of built up sort of profiles, and again these are you know all of these kids are different; they're all individual. But th there is a sort of profile as a, of a fragile, often lost child in the family, often very idealistic, with a sort of punishing sort of sense of perfection and failure, which is hard to live with, and the. Very, Sue and you, you both have said it already, very concrete in their way of thinking. So they, they, they don't have a mind that can reflect on themselves what they feel in relation to others. It's, it's like the absence of a mind. And in a way, then they think uh, that often, again, a caricature, sometimes with, um, with the girls in particular, in a way, as if they identify their female characteristics, say particularly the breasts, as sort of to do with childbirth, uh, sensitive, believed to be sort of, you know, full up with all sorts of feelings, and they're, they're often very sensitive underneath. There's a sort of idea, if only you could get rid of the breasts, you get rid of the problem, and then you become some sort of, I don't know, hard, macho boy who doesn't feel things, 
you know, in a way that hurts. So, I mean, these are just sort of profiles. It goes all sorts of ways. But that's what we – that's one of the things what you spent our time looking at and thinking about how these things are influential in producing uh, gender dysphoria. And then, and then how you work with the kid, as Sue described, in trying to open up ways of thinking in which you, you're sort of – drawing attention to the fact they may not, you know, find it very comfortable thinking about themselves and their emotions in relation to others. Um, you just get them to notice certain things that they may think are ordinary, but actually we might say that's not that ordinary, that you you don't know what you felt when, you know, you weren't picked and your sister was or... Could I ask, um, is the book aimed at uh, for for clinicians to read and uh, and can parents read it? Because I'm sure parents will want to read it. So should they read it and could they benefit from it? And also you, you directed it for children, adolescents and young people. Was there a reason that you, you stayed out of adults that like can this model be applied? Let's say therapists who are listening, who are working with adults with gender dysphoria, can it be applied? I wonder. Mm. So I think the reason we stuck with the sort of young people and under um, age groups was was in part, as you said right at the beginning, <clears throat> there hasn't really been anything written because this is such a new and developing area really over the past few years, <clears throat> excuse me, that we felt that that was a, a sort of missing part of, of uh, the what's been written about and so so that was the first thing and obviously again as we said because of the court case the judicial review you know I really felt you know with Marcus a sense of responsibility that if we were saying well we don't think you should be medicating you know there's got to be a way of offering something into this it's not we're not saying it's the only offer offering and it's not the only model but we we wanted to try and contribute to to improving the care for this for this young age group but I think the other thing is that so much and I'm sure that you two are are seeing this as well that so much of what young people are experiencing today um, in terms of how they have to grow up and and how their lives have been to this point, you know, the, the, the sort of teenagers now have had the internet and social media and computers around throughout their childhoods, haven't they? And I think that we really, what we've tried to focus on is understanding sort of the internal dynamics of what goes on between children and initially their parental objects. So, you know, in answer to your question, yes, I hope this would be of interest for parents maybe. And it's not about blaming parents. People always say, oh, you know, Freud said it's all your mother's fault. It's not. It really isn't. But it's about trying to sort of understand and unpick a bit the, the way in which young people's minds develop and how their defences then then can get set very kind of rigidly and concretely as a way of managing what I think must be a hugely anxiety-provoking world at the moment, the, the way they're having to learn relationships and learn about the external world and about growing up. So I think the developmental model is a huge theme, isn't it? And yeah. in what we've written yeah, about. And and the difficulty of separating, because again, I don't know if you two are finding this in your clinical work, but mm. I think a lot of the the parents who contacted us will say they're really good kids. You know, they're really you know Hyper they're very compliant. Hyper you know, compliant. Yes, yeah, very compliant. Absolutely. They're really lovely kids, you know. And of course yeah. There is a way in which we do have to separate and rebel a bit when we're kind of leaving the nest and getting away. But if if there has been this kind of compliance throughout, it, it, it is hard, I think, for young people to experiment in how they're going yeah. to move away and how they're going to test out. And, of course, in a therapeutic setting, it's an ideal place for a kid to be able to say a bit more, or a young person even, and up to 25-ish, you see, they're still developing, their cortex is still developing, and you're still trying to find yourself in the world, aren't you? And and kind of work out how to be, 
I suppose. Yeah, and and I think that, you see, as you both nodding, we were saying about the sort of compliance, there's a lot of compliance that in a way is an inhibition of sort of natural aggression and rebellion, but it sort of goes underground into, I think, these concrete solutions. So for some kids, I think they find that how are they going to... If you if you if you're a woman with a woman's body, you're going to develop as a woman in your own right, not feel colonised by your mother, nor completely kick against to say I don't want anything to do with motherhood, femininity, etc., etc. How? Because many of them, I don't think, can find their place. The place that they find is often with this, you know, a group who feel they're sort of outside the family, you know, um, identified with another group of what they think of as outsiders and will say, I never want children. I don't, you know, I I, I hate the idea. You know, many are not a, a sort of, they're really fearful of sexuality and all that sexuality brings into play. You know, you, you're growing up, you've got your own sexual body, you're going to have to, if you're going to get involved in sex, you, you know, what have you got to do? What's your role? What sort of sexual person will you be? And it's almost like they've, they've taken a sort of sideways move because they can't find a place between being a, a child of the parents or an adult with a mind, sexual life, body of their own. And um, they, they move into this sort of, this side alley, as it were. Um, yeah. just, I suppose just to go back to your question, though, Stella, about mm. who's it for, because yeah, I'm yeah. thinking we've come a long that, way yeah. from that question. Mm. I, I kind of would like to think that at different levels there might be, you know, interesting ideas there for, for young patients themselves, you know, if they felt interested because i think it can be a bit of a relief to find your sort of recognize yourself in the pages of something primarily obviously we've kind of written it for clinicians and and really just to try and introduce some other ideas um into mental health work and into the clinics where these young people are being seen i would hope also maybe some teachers might read it and some social workers and Mm. family workers um Again, really, just to open up the conversation, because I think so many of them have just been told to use the affirmation model and they feel and believe it might be the right thing to do. So I don't think it's a malign act. I think they're just following protocols. And I would really like to encourage people to kind of open up their minds a bit and kind of allow other ideas to come in and actually see that this is not a sort of transphobic bigoted view it's it's a way of trying to help these young people develop in whichever direction they're going to go so this affirmative model i suppose i don't know is it from the 20 the 2000s to 2012 i suppose it was first recommended by maybe wpath do you have a name for your model is it the evans model (laughs) no no No. Okay. Carry on. No, do you no, no. We, we, yeah, no, no, there's a Dora the Explorer. There's too, too much work. There's too much work that other people have done, and and yeah. and and historically, We're just a small part of it. You know, the, small people have been writing about this sort of thing for 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 years. Yeah, uh, it's just got forgotten, isn't it? You're right. It's going back to psychotherapy. Yeah. 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 Well, well, this this interview is part of a series that we're doing called Behind the Curtain, um, and this is the depth work in gender exploratory therapy. So, of course, psychoanalytic perspectives are part of you know the genre of therapies called depth perspectives, um, and I think it's been really people people have given us feedback that it's really valuable to think about gender dysphoria in all of these interesting ways because it only can enrich our understanding of ourselves. And even for individuals who are dysphoric and decide that transition is the best option for them, there's no harm whatsoever in being curious about how your family dynamics contributed to your experience of your gender or your childhood experiences. There's no harm done for us to be curious about why we are the way we are or the choices we make. Um, 
I guess yeah, one, one yeah. thing I'm also curious about, you've described several of the hypotheses, perhaps, that are in your book about why people might experience gender or get really fixated on transition. Do you discuss at all in the book the role of the social contagion itself or the role that social media has played in, in many young people adopting kind of a transgender identity? Is that part of the work or is that kind of out of the... We, we, we sort of, but we come from it from a point of view in, in a way that this thing called development, we all struggle with it. You know, you've got all sorts of conflicts going on and particularly the two biggest challenges are toddlerhood and adolescence when puberty kicks in with all the threat of the confusing things that are going on with your body, confusing roles that you'll be expected to take up in society, etc. And... Um, you know, but I think then, in a way, you you are preparing to leave the family, and in a way, adolescents are always looking for a group that they can belong to, and you know, a lot of these kids, they, they uh, we, you were both nodding when you said said before that they're, they're often sort of lost somewhere in the family. They 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 often have sort of grievances against the parents because. And these are very, these are sort of, you only get to them because they're, they're sort of buried when you sort of question, you know, the, the, the oldest daughter had uh, various psychological problems. So they took up mum and dad's time and the youngest brother is the, is the favourite and you feel this kid sort of lost. Now then I think they're very susceptible to the sort of pull of a group says it's just outside the family you don't have to compete with your with your older brother and your younger sister. There's a group here for you. We're not conventional, um, and and I think that's where the sort of contagion of the internet. No parents present, and a group that says that, that does rebel against the parents actually says, you know, those people who've been looking after you. They're both idiots. They don't know what they're doing. Don't listen to anything, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are very seductive. Um, sort of messages, but I think they, our views, they sort of tally with th- things that exist inside the individual, um, and and they find a place on the internet. If you see what I mean? Yeah, I I did a presentation talking about how adolescent tasks that we all have to go through are kind of exploited by some of the gender ideology, and one of those tasks is a sense of persecution. You know, yeah. and and kids often yeah. feel persecuted by their parents. That's old. Yeah. I mean, we've yeah. all gone through that. My yeah. mom and dad just don't understand me. They don't want me to be yeah. happy. And yeah. you hear that all the time in gender dysphoric young people. So I really, I appreciate very much that you guys are kind of pointing to the fact that none of this is really new. It's just taking on a particular form right now. Yeah. And I think the other thing is to say, because you asked about the sort of chapters of the book, we, we felt... It, the, our book is intended to be a sort of psychological investigation, really, an exploration. But we couldn't ignore the social and the political environment in writing it because I think they have had a massive yeah, effect yeah. on the clinical work, yeah. more so than a lot of other areas. But, you know, you get this from time to time, you know, throughout mm mental health history psychiatry there have been fashions when things come and go you know hysteria we had you know villages that would all drop down you know and go to bed for a week with flu and and lo and behold there was no infection you know sort of mass so so and then you know we've had groups of young people who've had eating disorders and 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 then cutting became uh, you know uh, in certainly in the uk sort of uh, it took off at one stage and so they, these things happen but i think you know as you've as you've said marcus that that the important thing is this is a particular period in history isn't it with the young people i think under the influence of the internet in a very different way and so again none of us really knows the whole answer mm. but i think that's an influence i also think there is that, you know, political, we don't, again, you know, there are all sorts of other people doing much more thorough work in that area, like Jennifer Bielek and Abigail Shreya and Debbie So. They're sort of all looking at this from other angles and their particular areas of expertise. But what you can't deny is that young people are really struggling to grow up and develop 
in, in the current time. I couldn't agree more. And is that a central almost theme of, of the therapeutic model of this book, is that these are children struggling to grow up and their, their pain is manifesting in, in a way, or am I jumping the gun there? Yeah, 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 I think it is. It yeah. is really. I mean, and I don't want yeah. that to sound condescending. Oh, they, you know, they just yeah. can't grow up. I think it's 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 a particular way which I think sort of their their minds have kind of developed, and and then because they haven't had as much learning, I think I think they haven't had as many rough knocks and and kind of maybe these real life situations. Uh, occur in their teenage years so so i think they're more alone with it i think the thing, not the thing is, is it's so said earlier on isn't it is, is it you, we all need, need our defenses to get through these developmental hurdles mm-hmm. and we go one step forward and two steps back but i think that i think that this sort of side alley is a sort of um in a way it's a sort of retreat from the dev- demands of development Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it's like putting a, for instance, the puberty block it's blockers, they put a sort of block on the development of secondary sex characteristics, as if you say, so the mind, which says, this is all very confusing, I'm developing pubic hairs yeah. or breasts or whatever, you go, right, we're going to stop all that. And and so the psychological stop goes along with the with the physical demand for puberty blockers. And in a way, I think that describes what, what's going on. It's like a, a sort of retreat from the demands, exactly as you said, Stella, of, of the turbulence of the developmental process. Now, also, Sasha, as you importantly said, you know, some of these kids would go on to transition, but it doesn't mean that, psychologically um work isn't helpful for whatever course you decide to take as an adult and it's not for us to to tell other people how they should live our lives what i think is responsible in terms of mental health practitioners you do a thorough psychological examination and investigation of what is going on um because often um, quick fixes and concrete solutions have got hidden long-term costs, yeah. um, which are not talked about in the assessments that we hear about in JIDS. You know, there's no, there's no discussion. They don't, they don't talk about the nuts and bolts of sexuality that you'll be missing out on if you have um, puberty blockers followed by cross-sex hormones because they say the kids are too young. <laughs> so. <laughs> So it's a funny thing that's going on with the services. It's almost like in the whole process of just rushing kids down the medical pathway, there's just a desire to put blinders on and not think about the future, which is ironically, unfortunately, an aspect of adolescence. That's what teenagers tend to do through no fault of their own because we all did it. But long-term thinking is not a a strong suit of a teenager. And so there's something incredibly ironic and almost like a meta-metaphor of some kind And yeah. and so I think your book is really timely and we're we're so grateful that you were able to talk about it. Is there anything else that you would like for us to Well there is you know, uh, do you know, you've just reminded me, Stella, actually, and I did, it's a it's a pretty um, miserable place to end or if, if we're kind of <laughs> wrapping up. But you've just reminded me actually that that of course, one of the things that I think for, for, for parents and for young people as well that, that has been, I think, one of the most cruel aspects of, if you were to call it the publicity for transitioning, I don't know how else to describe it, is that parents and children have been frightened into the idea that if they don't do this, they will suicide. And I think, you know, and again, um, the, the statistics are so hard to get hold of, you know, in any genuine way. But from what we are all beginning to see is these are young people who very often have comorbidities. They are dealing with a lot. They're not just dealing with gender identity confusions um, or incongruence. They are trying to manage all sorts of distress. And so, yes, some of them may have suicidal ideation and some of them may be vulnerable to that. But 
that is the thing as well, you see, that needs working with and exploring and helping. It's not that a pill is going to magic that away. And I think that that's such a crucial part of, I think, what we've talked about, because there are ways in which we have looked again at the idea of what they're trying to sort of kill off in themselves with that suicidal ideation. So and so I just wanted to mention that, that that's sort of one of the theoretical areas that we've tried to look at in terms of the, the sort of, in a sense, the propaganda that has been around suicidality and how parents have been sort of threatened with that and really understandably frightened by it, but trying to kind of, again, open it up for understanding and exploration and not as a sort yeah. of justification. What, what, one of the things I would say is, is, is in terms of the dynamic with the therapist is often the, the young person, you know, um, even over 18, often the parents are paying for them. You know, they you've got a suspicion you're working to their agenda, the parents' agenda, which is basically to stop this. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things, you know, that one's got to sort of, um, I think, take up in a way, you know, that at the end of the day, one may have one's feelings of, the, the young person comes in and says, oh, I've got my double mastectomy meeting next week. And you can, you try and understand what that's about, like what the pressure is to act, how you can make sense of it. But but in the end of the day, you know, you're, you're sort of not there to police how the child, you know, is, uh, you know, it's got to find a way of living life in the best possible way. Um, and I think that, to, to sort of be open that, you know, really repetition of your point, Sasha, you know, that, you know, that, that they fear they're either going to be often the ideal child that their parents always wanted, which they feel will be crush them, or they'll transition and they'll be rejected by the family. And actually, you know, we've all got to live with the fact that our kids aren't exactly as we would have wanted them and we're not exactly as they would have wanted <laughs> them, but we sort of try and make the best of a bad job. You know, we're, we're, we're tolerant and loving in, you know, in difficult circumstances, you know, and we've all got to sort of, and that's our sort of approach, you know, that, um, that coming to terms with the loss that's involved is saying we're not the, you know, you're not the ideal, but you, you you know um and that grievance can be spoken about yeah, and again yeah, i think that's the thing about the, the therapeutic go on what were you going to say that's a, it's just such a good point that like it's like we're not perfect you're not perfect none of us are perfect and searching for perfection is fundamentally a, a, a you know a fool's errand that will bring you great distress thanks for joining us this week on gender a wider lens This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.